0: Hi, this is Eve Ewing, and you're listening to Southside Weekly Radio, and you're listening to Southside Weekly Radio. I spoke with Dr. John H. Flores, Case Western Reserve University professor and author of The Mexican Revolution in Chicago, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2018, in his book and Mexican narrative outlines and articulates the story of Mexican immigrants settling in Chicago during the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. He focuses on their rich history and surviving, thriving, and transforming their identities and their stake in the United States. This was a very personal story for him.
1: Yeah, so I'm a a Mexican-American born in Chicago on the South Side. My mom and dad are both immigrants from Mexico. I've always had a foot in the city, and the city has a special place in my heart. When I began looking at the story of immigrants in Chicago, I was interested in recovering their contributions to the economy and society of the city and of the state and of the country. And rarely do I read about Mexican people, and if I do, they aren't depicted to me in the diversity that I know is there, and they aren't depicted to me as complex, deep-thinking activists who have made incredible contributions to this country and yet have often suffered and experienced hardship. I'm not seeing it the way I think it should be depicted. So my goal began, my goal became, I'm here to change the way you think about Mexican immigrants, which over time became, I'm here to change the way you think about immigration. But to do that, you have to do the very difficult and extremely time consuming work of extracting, of identifying All of those naturalization records, which are all mixed together with Irish people, Polish people, uh, Italian people, et cetera. And I began going into the federal court records of the Chicago area to begin extracting the records of every Mexican immigrant who applied for U.S. citizenship in the Chicago area. What I decided then to do was if I was going to go through all of these records to identify the Mexicans, I thought I might as well extract all the Spanish-speaking immigrants. So that meant if anybody was from Nicaragua, if anybody was from Honduras, Cuba, Argentina, I was going to extract their records as well. And I'm glad I did that because as I went through other kinds of uh, pieces of evidence in other archives throughout Chicago, I began seeing that the Mexican immigrants as early as the 1920s developed very important political relationships with Nicaraguans. And then in the 1930s, they developed relationships with Cubans and with Spaniards. And the census is not very good at giving you a sense of who these people are, where they lived, what they did for a living. But naturalization records are really detailed. So using naturalization records and then using other kinds of evidence, I was able to start being more specific about talking about the relationships that Mexicans had with Nicaraguans and Argentines as early as the 1920s in Chicago, and um, I began putting together basically a census. I created a census of the Spanish-speaking immigrants who applied for U.S. citizenship in the Chicago area between 1900 to 1940. And maybe to end the point here, I would say I ended up extracting 3,110 Spanish-speaking immigrants out of however many thousands and thousands and thousands of records I went through And then there was this name that I kept – that I was searching for, this individual, Refugio Martinez, who supposedly was a Mexican-American who had been deported, and who had been deported supposedly for his connection to the Communist Party of the United States. But what I began to see was that he had really been attacked and deported because of how influential he was at building a multiracial labor union. It took years and years to collect all of these naturalization records but along that path I was in an archive doing research and somebody said to me you know we have some documents that we were moving from room to room we're not really sure what's in this box but if you want to look at them you can and so I got a hold of this box and what I found within it were a set of INS hearings that involved the deportation of Refugio Roman Martinez And as I'm saying, this took, this whole project involved, I don't know, many, many, many years of my life wanting to tell the story of
0: Mexican political activism and assimilation in Chicago. A very personal story to me. I wanted to tell that story. Dr. Flores prefaces the Chicago timeline by calling to attention the forces and frameworks in which caused the Mexican exodus after 1920. I mean, we call it the revolution, but in many ways it is a civil war. Fought by a distinct
1: factions who were all trying to create a new Mexico. And as I write about in the book, I end up focusing on three of those factions the people I call liberals, the people I call radicals, and the people I end up calling traditionalists, which we can call conservatives. I end up calling them traditionalists. And there were various organizations in Mexico that represented those political tendencies that battled each other. Over 1 million people died killing each other from the start of the revolution to you know, 1920 to 1917 when the majority of the violence is ending. And so you have both in Mexico domestic turmoil, violence, economic destabilization coupled with uh, an emerging and growing world war and a United States that is over time producing war materials for that war. And that is, over time, starting to prepare for the possibility of entering that war, which means they're going to have to figure out how they're going to um, induct, how they're going to build their army while they manage to continue to harvest food and agricultural products. So it's in the years prior to World War One that the United States already begins in various ways to encourage Mexican immigrants to migrate into the Southwest to serve as agricultural laborers for a number of U.S. agricultural companies. But in the context of World War I, by 1917, we start what's called the Temporary Admissions Program, and our government actively recruits Mexican people to come into the United States to first work in agriculture, but then also work in the railroad industry, in the transportation industry, and also in mining and in other areas. And so you have the classic push and pull process of immigration that ends up leading to a migration stream. So as early as 1885, the United States links its railway system to the Mexican railway system, establishing really what becomes a binational railway. And in the wake of 1885, there are thousands and thousands of Mexicans who have some experience working for for this binational railway system. And then during World War One and the Mexican Revolution, that railway system becomes an avenue, a method, a way of escaping the revolutionary violence, and also being uh, used as a transportation uh, vehicle to enter the United States. So thousands and thousands of Mexicans start making their way into the United States, and you know between maybe 1900 and 1917, uh, the end is maybe 1918, the end of the war. Anywhere from a million. Maybe about a million mexicans into the u.s and while the majority remain in the southwest thousands start making their way up into chicago uh, to milwaukee uh, to st paul minnesota uh, across the midwest and they're using that transportation system that they're helping to maintain and build
0: the railroad system so it all comes together and these communities begin to grow they begin to grow in significant ways the book consists of six chapters and a conclusion The first oppositional group, the liberals, are introduced early in the book. These liberal Mexican migrants were also among the first Mexican immigrants to arrive in Chicago in the late 1910s and early 1920s. According to the book, by the 1930s, Mexican communities existed in the near west side, back of the yards, South Chicago, Legan Park, Lakeview, Uptown, Bryant Park, North Lawndale, Blue Island, South Deering, near north side, and near Lake Michigan neighborhoods. Yeah, the Mexican liberals are very much arriving
1: uh, as people who are critical of the porfiriato, of Porfirio Diaz's 35-plus-year rule in Mexico. And they believe that dictators- a dictatorship like Porfirio Diaz's is at its core undemocratic and, is pre- and prevented Mexico from becoming a more prosperous society. And they also link the Catholic Church to their analysis. The vast majority of liberals... I show are Catholics, but they are anti-clerical, which I find is a concept that some people have a hard time wrapping their heads around, which is you can be a Catholic, but be very critical of the Catholic Church as an institution, and in fact be so critical of it that some liberals will have nothing to do with the Catholic Church, that from their perspective has historically been aligned with Rome and Europe and not Mexico. They see it as an institution that is against modernization that stifled model modernization in Mexico that did not want to create a learned, modern, and prosperous Mexican people. And so they're very critical of the Catholic Church. There's a division within that community, within what we can call this liberal, middle-class, white-collar community, over what role they should be playing within the broader population of Latino Chicago. That is, should they segregate themselves? and just hang out in their own separate, more elitist organizations. And you know, should they, should they detach themselves? Or should they be serving as leaders? But what I show in Chicago is that those really, really rich elites didn't really make their way all the way up into Chicago. And so instead what you get is this community of middle class folks who basically work for a living, but end up working, typically work white collar jobs. And then lots and lots and lots of blue collar folks And there was also an ideological tension within the middle class that I show that was led by, um, that was represented by people like Mia Dominguez, who is the wife of a counselor official and is a singer in Mexico at the time. And she arrives in this Chicago community with a vision of being a social reformer, because many of the Mexican liberals who experienced the revolution in Mexico were trying to create a society with a larger social welfare net, a society that was more supportive of workers' rights, a society that had uh, more opportunities for people, that was more democratic, in which educational opportunities were more available. The point of the Fisted Rebellion is very important also to this story because it really brings into sharp uh, relief how serious the crisis is and how serious the conflict is between the liberals and the traditionalists. I mean, prior to 26, it's clear to many traditionalists that the revolution is an anti-clerical revolution, that it has an anti-clerical dimension to it that's very upfront and center. That's how they see it. And in many ways, they're, they're right about that. But in 1926, when Plutarco Gaias has a serious conflict with the Catholic Church of Mexico and the church and state actually begin to battle each other. There, uh, it confirms to many traditionalists that Mexico is this incredibly anti-clerical place, and it confirms it confirms to many liberals that the traditionalists are never going to let go of their allegiance to the Catholic Church. They're never really going to want a separation between church and state. But what I show is that the traditionalists, in their battles with the liberals, rejected everything that the liberals talked about and so the traditionalists end up saying we what makes us mexican is not uh mystified what makes us mexican is our catholicism which derives from spain and that opens them up to then talking about spain and western civilization in a different way than the way the liberals are talking about it i show in the book that the liberals very much embrace a Mexican mestizo understanding of Mexico. They embrace the idea that Mexicans are a multiracial people. And there's a debate in the literature about whether or not mestizaje is itself a uh, white supremacist almost construct because it often erased the African heritage of Mexico and I show that the vast majority of liberals wanted to emphasize that the color of your skin didn't, uh, wasn't some sort of uh, barrier for you to adopt a liberal ideology, that you could be of any color and adopt a liberal ideology. And their hero was Benito Juarez, who, from their perspective, was an indigenous person who adopted a liberal ideology and then led the country as the president. The liberals saw that, that the way American racism works is it beats you down and it makes you insecure and it makes you feel inferior. And when you feel inferior, you're not gonna be able to constantly defend
0: yourself against racist attacks. Naturally, Dr. Flores transitions to the traditionalists who arrived in Chicago in the mid to late 1920s this was a devout catholic community that existed in chicago and in east chicago and gary indiana the traditional,
1: as i call them the extremely devout catholics over time they begin to believe in order to be mexican catholic they need to sever their ties with mexico and become u.s citizens so they see that in mexico starting with the mexican revolution the mexican revolution has a very anti-clerical dimension to it and they see that mexican liberal revolutionaries are either anti-clerical, or atheist, or Protestant, and are very critical of their of the traditionalist religi- religious beliefs. And then they see that the radicals in the 1930s, under uh, who are inspired by the Mexican presidency of Lazaro Cardenas between the mid 30s and the late early 40s, they see that the radicals are emboldened by Lazaro Cardenas, who is speaking of socialist education, and they see that Mexican radicals some of whom are embracing a socialist identity, are either also anti-clerical or atheists and are also very critical of the Catholic Church. So from the 20s, uh, Mexico under Plutarco Calles and his very aggressive anti-clericalism to what they see it is Lázaro Calvino's anti-clericalism in the 1930s to the revolution where this begins. And of course, during the Cristero Rebellion from 26 to 29. What the traditionalists see is Mexico is incredibly – it's incredibly difficult to be a proud Catholic in Mexico, and we're better off here in the United States. And yet they don't want to abandon their Mexican national culture, and so what they do is, as you worded it, they sort of de- deterritorialize Mexican culture, and they basically accept that there should be a divorce between what they consider Mexican cultural practices and any kind of legal, uh, civic allegiance to the Mexican state. And the best way of creating that reality in practice, of actualizing that, is to keep speaking Spanish, keep emphasizing your proud Mexican cultural heritage, but relinquish your Mexican citizenship which is that legal civic allegiance to the Mexican state, which is defined as an anti-clerical state, and become a US citizen, and therefore be protected from US deportation campaigns. And that leads them directly into then the Democratic Party and the support for FDR. Yeah, what I show in the book is that uh, the Gary Steel Mills and the Steel Mills in Chicago, Indiana, began recruiting Mexicans to work at them even before World War I. But then in the context of World War I, they begin recruiting more of them. And that begins a pattern of of chain migration. And maybe this is different than the way chain migration is typically talked about in America because I find when it is talked about, it's usually talked about in a way that allows the employer to be left out of the picture or labor recruiters to be left out of the picture. And as you hear what I'm saying, steel mills in the region meatpacking plants in the region. Other employers in the region recruited Mexican people to work for them. And that began a process by which the initial wave of Bahio immigrants that settled in East Chicago began to grow. And that became a broadly uh, Bahio-based community. And that extended out into the steel mill region of Northwest Indiana, which includes Gary, Indiana. So what I show in the book is that The economy and the competition and the arrival of these Mexicans engendered conflicts. So you have these waves where the state governments and then over time collaborate with the federal government to aggressively push Mexican people out of their communities. And when you do that, sometimes the communities never
0: recover from that. They never bounce back. Throughout the book, Dr. Flores reiterates and emphasizes the fact that Mexican migrants in Chicago relentlessly pursued educational opportunities and prioritized mastering the English language.
1: Yeah, that's another component of the book that I that I think differentiates what I'm doing from others, which is not only do most books portray the Mexican population of Chicago in the time period we're talking about as any of a solely working class population, which I would say they're a majority working class, but we do have these middle class folks who I've talked about already with you, but there's this sense that they're an incredibly, incredibly illiterate population, which I challenge in the book. But what I found was it just wasn't true, that in addition to this middle-class population, which was definitely illiterate in both the Spanish and oftentimes in the English language, you have all these working-class people who are learning to read and who are involved in associational life and are getting broadsheets, pamphlets. And if they don't know how to read, You have Mexican people who do know how to read who are reading to them and teaching them how to read. And then, as you mentioned, I show that you have Mexicans taking initiative to set up community educational courses for people. And sometimes they're doing these out of their homes. So you have a whole long list, I mean, hundreds of Mexican organizations that are created in Chicago over the time period of my study. And I provide an index of them at the end of my book. And all of these organizations, or at least many of them, not only had newspapers that they published, which obviously conveys that someone's reading them, and I often found readership data and sales data to show like that there are people reading these things, which means they're literate. And that's, I think, one of, as you, as you said, that seems to be like a line that runs through the book where I'm saying to people, the Mexican people think education matters. The Mexican people think literacy matters. And I can show you that they were far more hungry for knowledge and far more intellectual than you've given them credit for. That is, in your hands, everybody's an illiterate, but the community that I depict, people are hungry for knowledge and people are doing very creative things to provide each other with educational opportunities. The United States then, and some would argue now, speaks in a very derogatory way when it comes to Mexican people. And Mexicans are often talked about as illiterate, as um, pre-modern, as um, barbaric, as prone to violence. Uh,
0: It's not too different than the way many American politicians speak about Mexican people today. In Cleveland, Ohio, the Frente was established. Frente members, or as Dr. Flores refers to them, Frentistas, were the Mexican radicals that survived the travails of the Great Depression and persisted the resistance into the Cold War years of America. Their origins are in Mexico. Cleveland was an incredibly... uh, growing and powerful industrial
1: city. At one point, I believe Cleveland was like the sixth largest city, maybe in the United States, something like that. And so the steel mills here were running high uh, and hard, and uh, there were a lot of jobs, and they began recruiting. And they brought people of Mexican descent here to work in the steel mills in the context of World War One as well. My sense is that it could have possibly been a Mexican in uh, Cleveland, who reached out to the Frente in Mexico City and said, send me some literature, send me some material. I want to start talking to people about this. And that's sort of what I show happened in Chicago, that a Mexican immigrant named Nicholas Hernandez reaches out to the Frente and says, send me literature, send me documents. I want to start talking to people about this. And ultimately, he forms like a group in Chicago. in Chicago. And then over time, multiple groups form. And here we have Lázaro Cárdenas, who starts taking, after 36, these incredibly bold uh, steps. He he starts supporting mass unionization, and under Cárdenas, millions of Mexican people unionize. He ends up nationalizing the oil industry, which shocks the United States and Western Europe, and they begin condemning his administration, and yet he does it. And that act just electrifies... Those acts electrify Mexican progressives and radicals in the United States. So if we fast forward to the 30s, the radicals who are dealing with a more impoverished population because this is in the context of the Depression, the radicals have less resources. And the radicals see that they are dealing with Mexican people who are now severely impoverished in the context of of the Depression and are being scapegoated as people who don't deserve, let's say, any kind of public welfare, even though they've contributed economically to the United States. And the radicals see the way newspapers talk about Mexican immigrants, the way politicians do, the way American intellectuals do, and as you pointed out right now, the way the movies do. So I think it's like a film that's playing in Chicago called Barbarous Mexico, uh, which is very insulting to the radicals, because what they see is Hollywood depicts Mexicans as either bandits or buffoons so either you're a dangerous criminal uh, or you're kind of a bumbling fool and this they feel is incredibly problematic in the way their youth the young mexicans of the city are going to end up seeing themselves how they're going to internalize that unless there's once again an intervention and so they use these materials to start creating local classes on mexican history civics uh, culture they start talking about labor issues. They start talking about things that are happening in Mexico under Cárdenas, like the nationalization that I talked about earlier, or his emphasis on being part of the union movement. But they start incorporating all this as a way to challenge the negative and discriminatory depiction of Mexicans that they see in the movies and in the newspapers, and that the comments that come out of the mouths of of politicians and intellectuals in America. The Frente base is overwhelmingly working class. This is not really a middle class movement. There are middle class people among them. And some of the leaders, one could argue, are even middle class if they own like a cigar shop or if they own like a little restaurant. But the vast majority of people are, are working class people. And they want to empower them and so they quickly began finding uh, teachers community members who had teaching abilities to teach in the english language and they started setting up community educational classes that were offered throughout the city to children to start refining their english and spanish language skills and they wanted them to be bilingual at one point, a Frente member says, we need them to be able to be leaders here and in our home country. We need them to be able to be leaders in both spaces. And so at no point are any Mexicans, whether we're talking liberals, traditionalists, or radicals, opposed to learning the English language. And they're working with where people are at, as opposed to idealizing them and or dismissing them. That's a really important point because you know they, they're not starting off by saying, let's just form a union. And that's not how this works. They see actually education and inspiration, and it, you know energizing our people is actually the first step in this process. And as I show, with very little resources, they managed to do a lot. Uh, they managed to they managed to do quite a bit with very limited resources. It's pretty incredible, actually, how how they're using resources to to do that. And they use the settlement houses which are like double-edged swords, as you know. On the one hand, the settlement houses there will assist, will provide Mexicans with uh, office spaces, with uh, community room spaces, will assist them. But the settlement houses there are basically there to Americanize them, to incorporate them into the United States. And the settlement houses are mostly run by liberals and some conservatives, and they are very critical of anything that seems too radical anything that seems uh, to be critical of capitalism, anything that seems to be socialist. And it's ultimately, uh, as I show a tightrope for them, and they do a whip, they do okay, but then over time, things get worse and worse and worse, and finally the settlement houses move against them and end up expelling them from the houses I show in the late 30s. World War II starts in 39, and by 42, we are recruiting Mexicans to come back into the United States. That is, the very people who have just been deemed unworthy of being in this country and who many of whom were recruited to come here in the context of World War I and who have been devastated now through deportation, that's the very country that we turn to to re-recruit people to come back into the country. And we recruit them by the hundreds and hundreds of thousands, ultimately millions, who come into the United States to labor. And what I show is that in the context of that massive labor recruitment program called the Bracero Program, which starts in 42 and is supposed to end with the war in 45, it continues all the way until the 60s, until 64. So you have these Cold War fears of subversion and Cold War fears of integration combined with a recession in the early 50s. And once again, Mexicans are targeted for deportation. But this is, of course, happening. If you heard my timeline there, this is overlapping with the Bracero program, which is continuing. When people talk about the Cold War era, they sometimes mention Operation Wetback, which officially is supposed to start in 1954. And that is at the official name that the U.S. government and the INS use for the deportation campaign that's supposed to take place in 54. They call it Operation Wetback. We have, as you mentioned, a context because of the forces that I mentioned earlier, where the United States government decides to carry out another mass deportation campaign. And we have a Republican former military official in power, Whitey Eisenhower, who has connections, and we have different agencies who are moving in a Cold War uh, militarization direction. And they do uh, call upon General Joseph Swing of the 6th Army in California to supposedly help put a stop to the so-called, quote, the illegal invasion of wetbacks, end quote. And what you see here is uh, this militarization of the INS uh, leads to a more aggressive way of targeting Mexican people. Swing and others that are a part of the INS's militarization, they're very uh, successful at militarizing that agency and in making that agency uh, very effective at deporting people. And I actually heard this very progressive scholar recently say this is Uh, say this quite recently, which still stands out to me. She's a very progressive scholar, but she often says that Operation Wetback didn't work, that it was ineffective. And there's a number of people who say that. And what they say is it didn't work because it wasn't as successful as the government claimed. That is, the government inflated some of its deportation figures and the government overplayed what it did. I would argue that Operation Wetback was incredibly successful. It devastated Mexican communities across the United States. So I don't know how many millions of Mexicans you need to deport in order to say that the program was successful. The radicals, and some liberals, but mostly radicals who are politically active at that time, they end up disciplining and deporting those people, which by then, by doing so, you end up then creating a more conservative Mexican-American community a community that would have had these other sides to it, but those other sides were disciplined by the U.S. government in the context of the Cold War.
0: Dr. Flores characterizes U.S. immigration policy as dehumanizing and connects beta-testing tactics during Operation Wetback to the travesties and crimes of humanity taking place at the U.S.-Mexico border today.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what we're talking about is is a culture of dehumanization. As I talk about in the book, and, it's, you know, you, you're making the connection there, which I think is the right connection to make, which is the government has beta tested some of these things that we're seeing now. They beta tested this on Mexican people. Whether we're talking about braceros or wetbacks, you're talking about objectification. You're talking about not treating people with dignity and treating them as human beings who are trying to do the best that they can in a very exploitative and hypocritical world. And as you're saying, if you read my book and you see the way the government is beta testing techniques on Mexicans in the 50s, you see then what they've continued to do in the 70s, what they did in the 80s, what they're doing now. And it all pertains often, it all revolves around a political or economic crisis in which Latinx people who are not citizens, non-citizen Latinx people, are scapegoated and targeted. And I think some of the horrors that we see that you just emphasized come out of treating a people as a disposable, deportable people to be used when the economy is growing and to be discarded when it's not. Every time this country has any kind of serious economic or political crises, Mexicans are the ones who are targeted. As I say in the book, no group of people, no group of people in the history of the United States has been expelled from and then recruited
0: back into the United States by the hundreds and hundreds of thousands the way the Mexican people have. Solidarity is what Dr. Flores promotes as a healing and collective action mode of empowerment. He also calls to action a multiracial movement to counter the injustices, inequities, and indignities catalyzed by the United States empire. I mean, one of the things I don't hear enough from my perspective, Matthew, is the word solidarity. We need to have
1: solidarity. That is, we need to build a multiracial a multi-racial movement to combat these things. If you try to combat any of these things alone, I think we're going to be defeated by the U.S. government. We don't have the public spaces we need to together to talk about things that are happening. We're very separated from each other. We have all of these separate communities without public spaces that are often accessible. There's a number of big cities that have privatized and privatized more and more spaces. And then on top of that, the public spaces aren't spaces where you can easily gather without having to request a permit or get some sort of state approval to gather together to talk. And I think we need to have uh, conversations about everything that's happening in spaces where we can come together. And so I think this is something that all people have to ask themselves. That is, what is the universal identity? Is there a universal identity that we could all come together around? Or is there a way for us to own
0: our own particular identities and come together around the universal? Can we have both? Dr. Flores kindly offered some words of wisdom for humility humans who strive to improve the world around them.
1: I think what's really important is finding your voice, finding what you want to do, finding your your mission. I think at times... It may seem impossible or it may seem insurmountable. It may seem like you're facing a number of barriers to to achieve your goal there. But I think you have to, you know, you have to figure out like what is what is it you want to do? And can you very be very clear and intentional and congruent about what it is you want to do? You know, it's challenging for people to sit down and read a three, four 500 page book. I mean, heck, I read books for a living, right? And if you hand me a 500-page book. I mean, it feels like wow, this is an investment. I did have to be very, very uh, concise about some of the sections, some of the things that I talk about, and I cut out a lot. I cut out a lot that I could have gone into a lot more detail. But I actually think the, the finished product works for me. I think uh, you know, I I really try to humanize the injustice of the deportation of Refugio Roman Martinez. I try to really show the The diversity of the Mexican people who are too frequently just talked about as Mexicans, as though there's no diversity in this community. And I try to show that ultimately it's both Mexico and the U.S. government that end up creating the Mexican-American community of the United States.